Hi, this is Gary Habermas. I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here, and I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on many occasions, and over the years I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets And I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions, and I highly recommend his program. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, like all the other days, is no exception. I'm going to be talking today about who Jesus is in the book of Colossians. Now, this is a little book in your New Testament, one of the disputed Pauline epistles, or there are some who do think Paul did write it, and I'm sure we'll be looking at that some. But what does it say about Jesus? I mean, don't the Jehovah's Witnesses love to come to us with that little passage that says, He is the firstborn of all creation. And well, there you have it. Jesus is part of creation. What else can we learn about who Jesus is from Colossians? To discuss this, I'm joined with someone who did, I believe, his PhD in this area, and that's Matt DeLacory. He earned his bachelor's degree in business from the Georgia Institute of Technology, his master's in divinity from Luther Rice University, and his PhD in New Testament from, from Radbo. And I hope I pronounced that correct. He is the founder and president of the Apologetics Ministry, Why Should I Believe, which has chapters at Georgia Tech and Cornell. You can find his po- podcast and blog at mattdelockery.com. So, uh, Dr. Delockery. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, if uh, my audience doesn't know much about who you are, can you tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, it started a long time ago when I was actually growing up in church. My parents took me from the time that I was young, and you know, I just thought that's always what you were supposed to do. Um, when I was about 13 or so, I got really interested in finding more out about Christianity, and I tried to do that through the church. Um, basically, by the time I was 18, I, I gave up with that. It's like, okay, I'm looking for Christianity, but I can't find it here. So since that time, um, I was still a Christian. I just, I was just very disappointed in the sort of answers that I got from, from church about what Christianity actually was. Um, that led to a long process that... Uh, that went through having a spiritual mentor while I was at Georgia Tech, which I think is a real reason God sent me there. And, you know, then I went through uh, through seminary and apologetics class, which I hated. It wasn't very good at all. I actually found out about apologetics through another through another way and discovered something that I've been looking for for a long 
time. It's like, well, if you finally hear people who are using reason and evidence to, to try to understand their faith, that's what I've been looking for for the last 10 years. It really shouldn't have been this hard to find. And so that carried on um, and led me to do two things. One was to do a PhD in New Testament to, to find some answers to what I've been looking for all along, which is, you know, what is Christianity? And the others started an apologetics ministry called Why Should I Believe to try to help share some of those answers that I found with other people. So that's sort of a brief summary of what's been going on for the last 20-some-odd years. I'm kind of curious about something you said, about how you went to a church to try to find Christianity, and you couldn't find it there. I mean, what were you finding there that wasn't Christianity? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of different answers that you get from, from different places, but... I don't think it's any surprise that there's a lot of churches where things are just sort of a surface level mm-hmm. sort of thing. And it's people go and they, they it's like they attach a, they put a Christian sticker on things and it's not really Christianity. It's just sort of like, it's more social and more cultural than it actually is yeah. something that people live their lives by. So, I mean, if somebody's actually looking for the real thing, it's not hard to tell that, you know, that's just a cheap knockoff. And you you want something that's, that's deeper, something that's a little better. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really finding that. So I was, that's what disappointed me with, with the answers that I was getting. I have to sadly agree with you. I find many churches to be thoroughly boring just because... There's not really any challenge there whatsoever. It seems more like a social club. We all go and we hear how to feel good. We sing songs that we don't really believe because they talk about Jesus being our everything and such, and people don't really live that out too well. And then every sermon is pretty much pure application about how to be a good person. Yeah, it's like if Jesus really is your everything, the rest of your life will look different than it does. So it, mm-hmm. it seems a little like there's a disconnect between what you're saying and what you're living. That's bothersome. I was also surprised about going to seminary and taking an apologetics class and finding it boring. Yeah, it was boring. I mean, you could do apologetics well, and you could do it, you know, not so well. I mean, it was mostly like here's some facts about some things, and let's talk about if it's. It just wasn't that interesting. Mm-hmm. There's, um, you know, it was, it was around that time, I think it was maybe like a year later, um, I actually took a class on World Jews and Origins, and I had a professor who had a master's in biology uh, before he decided to get his PhD in theology. And so he's like, all right, we're going to talk about evolution, and we're going to do this from a biological perspective. And one of our course textbooks was a college biology textbook. So let's get into the biology. Let's talk about it. I'm like, okay, here we go. Finally, let's, let's not just say, well, the Bible says that God created everything, and we're done now. It's like, all right, well, what, what does the science say? If we're going to be saying that science is this or science is not, What's the data? And so that's where I actually discovered apologetics, and that's where it started to actually like become real to me and discover that there's this whole field out there where people use reason and evidence and logic and try to understand their faith Mm -hmm. for more than you know just that surface level. You know, I also think there's something interesting about having you on my show here is that this is one of the rare times that I was on your show before you were on my show. Yeah. Nice. Well, for those who don't know, Matt 
actually interviewed me last month for Autism Awareness Month, and I have actually been to speak at Why Should I Believe on the same topic. You have, and so that went really well. So I was sort of like, well, I want to get this on my podcast too. So, mm-hmm. uh, so then I'm like, hey, can I interview? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, today we're talking about the book of Colossians. Now, what was it that got you interested in Colossians so much? Well, I was looking for an answer to the question, what is Christianity? And I was talking with my advisor, and he was basically like, you know, Matt, there are two letters where Paul gives his theology. He had a Dutch, Dutch, Dutch accent, so every time that I, I think of something that he says, I always do it in a Dutch accent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Romans and Colossians. You are just a PhD student. Romans is too big for you. Colossians. 95 verses, that's for your size. Mm. And so really it was sort of like, well, between the two, uh, Romans isn't really an option because honestly I'm just a beginner and, and it's just too much to tackle. And he was right, there was, there's no question about that. But honestly, as I got into the letter, I discovered, you know, you know what, Romans is not the best place to look for this. It, it really is in Colossians, even though the letter's authorship is disputed. Because what I was looking for was, was not Christian theology as such. It's not like the center of all Christian thought, of all Christian theology. Mm-hmm. What I was actually looking for um, is more of what we would call a Christian worldview. Sort of like just, just the basics, just the essence. Like, if you were to put Christianity up next to atheism, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, something like that, how, how would those two compare? How would Christianity and Islam or atheism compare? What are, what are their essential aspects? What makes each what it is? And Colossians really explains that better, I think, than, than any other letter, uh, including Romans, mm. does. So I think it is the best place to look for a Christian worldview. Those are pretty strong claims. You know, on this show, we want to put you to a test and see if you can back them. Yeah, I'll be happy to explain further why I think that if you want. That's, I understand. I understand exactly what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That uh, and I expected a lot of pushback from mm-hmm. both my, my manuscript and my defense committee. I mm-hmm. actually didn't get that much. Um, mm-hmm. A little surprising. Well, let's talk some about the authorship of Colossians. I know it's not your main focus, but you had to look at it some. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So, who do you think wrote it, and why? Uh, short answer, Timothy, under the supervision of Paul. Okay. Um, there's a lot of arguments, uh, over, should I say, most of the arguments against Paul being the primary author center around that there's differences in theology, there's differences in style, mm-hmm. there's differences in vocabulary, uh, and so forth. And I don't think that's really disputed. Uh, the people who say that Paul's the author don't, don't say that that's wrong. They would just claim that, well, they could write it different ways at different times. Uh, for different purposes, um, but I don't think we necessarily have to say that. So if you look at the letter itself, there's evidence to suggest that, that Paul was not uh, the only real author, or possibly even the primary author. Um, it says in uh, verse 1 that there's that Timothy is his co-author, Paul, an apostle Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. But what's interesting is what happens in verse 3. He, he uses the first person plural. He says, we thank God, you know, we heard of your faith, and so on and so forth. When you compare it to 1 Corinthians, there's a similar opening, but something different happens. 
it says in verse 1, Paul and Sosthenes. But when he, when he jumped down to verse 4, Paul switches to the first person singular. He says, I thank you, I do this, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Possibly indicating that Sosthenes is just sort of like an honorary co-author. Like, mm-hmm. He's really writing this, but Sosthenes is like, yeah, he's here too, and he's, he you know, attaches his name to this. But in Colossians, you know, Timothy is actually in the included. We thank God. We heard of your faith, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then when you consider the fact that at the end of the letter, it has you know, Paul you know, signing his own name and, and stuff like that, and then you add in the, the differences in vocabulary. I think what may may have happened was, as, as you know, Paul uh, discipled Timothy and was training him. And it could very well be that a part of that training was training in letter writing. So I don't think it'd be hard to imagine Paul saying to Timothy, all right, you've, you've been doing pretty well. You've got your theology you know, together pretty well. Let's see how you do keeping up with church. Let's see how you do writing a letter. Try writing a letter, and let me see what you do. Address the situation in Colossae. And so Timothy writes a letter, and then Paul was, was like, okay, well, unless that's pretty good. You need to change this here. You need to change that there and fix it up. And he goes through an editing process. Sort of like a professor and his graduate TA might do, you know, one of the big ones is studying under him. And so Timothy is responsible for probably putting most of the letter together, I would think, though it was supervised by Paul. Mm-hmm. However, I still will call the letter Pauline, and, you know, when I, when I talk or write about it, I'll still refer to Paul as the primary authority behind it. And so I still think it is a Pauline letter because Timothy would have gotten his theology from Paul. Timothy uh, was trained by Paul, and Paul was uh, still signed off on the letter and said, I'm okay with all this. So I think it does still investigate Paul's theology because he wouldn't have signed off on it if he didn't say that, you know, I'm okay with everything that's in there. So mm-hmm. I think Timothy wrote it under the supervision of Paul, but because of where Timothy got his information from it, because Paul actually was involved in the process of putting the letter together, we can still call it Pauline and still use it as a way to understand what Paul actually thought. And when do you think it was written? Uh, I didn't get into the date that much because the most most of the question was, is Paul still alive or not? And as long as he's still alive, then standard Pauline dates for when he was uh, alive and when it would have been written are fine. Um, if not, then it would have been later. Um, most of the uh, most of the questions as far as like the meaning of the letter don't fall around the dates. Mm. You know, wasn't it the case that Colossae was hit by a major earthquake sometime around that time, Bo? It was. Uh, that happened. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was. Mm. And do you have any idea where it was written from the letter? Uh, well, Paul was, Paul was in prison when he was writing this. He talks about being about the Colossians remembering his chains mm-hmm. towards, uh, towards the end of chapter 1 and a little bit in the beginning of chapter 2. Mm-hmm. But again, that's that's not something that I got into that yeah. much in my research. Just I need to know the authorship question, mm-hmm. but after that it was, it was strictly focused on what does the letter actually say? What, is, what does it mean? Okay, now you said that, uh, that in your thinking, Paul is saying to me, okay, you're doing good theology, so why don't you write a letter in view of the Colossi situation? What was the situation? 
Well, the situation was there was this group of philosophers, is what he, what he calls them, this alternative philosophy that was there, and some of the Colossians were in danger of being led astray by it. That wasn't so bad as what's going on in Galatia, where they totally like left the faith and they they gone down a different path and he was super angry with them. It was more like a warning, hey, don't do this. You haven't done it yet, but but don't do this, don't be led astray. And so this is why it gets why I think that um, Colossians is the best place to look for a Christian worldview, because what Paul actually is doing here is comparing Christianity to this other philosophy and explaining why Christianity is better. So you get an actual comparison of Christianity with another worldview, which is another one of the reasons I think this is a better place to look for a Christian worldview than Romans, because it's actually being compared to another worldview. You don't get that in Romans. And in doing that, you can get a little bit at the question of why does Paul think Christianity is better? Because he does put the two up next to each other. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about this situation that was going on. How, how do we know this is what was going on? You mean, are you asking, like, is there external evidence suggesting that... What evidence leads, leads us to think that this was what was going on? Mostly just the letter. There's not, yeah. there's not a lot of external evidence suggesting one thing or another. The problem is identifying what the actual philosophy was. Scholars are really sort of stuck on that. There's been guesses. Uh, it used to be for a long time that it was some sort of Gnosticism. People thought that's what it would be. That was, a, that was more popular you know, some some decades ago. Now it's scholars are leaning a little bit more towards it as a Jewish mysticism. Um, but the problem is there's not really anything external to the letter to be able to figure out what is this actually attached mm-hmm. to. So you pretty much have to just go from what the letter itself says. And Paul describes the philosophy some, but not in as much detail as we would really like. Now you mentioned that it's not Gnosticism because that didn't that was popular a few decades ago to think that but it's I mean it's my understanding that full blown Gnosticism wasn't even a reality yet. Right, it wasn't. It was uh, the, the people who say that are thinking that it's some sort of like proto gnosticism that it was it was getting going or something like that. This is an early version of it. Um, probably another thing that's related to the difficulty that we have on identifying this is that it's probably some sort of a, a local uh, philosophy, a local world. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not something that was widespread. Paul actually makes claims in the letter about Christianity being spread throughout the entire world, which is sort of a knock against them saying, okay, well, this is a worldwide thing. The one that uh, you're in danger of being led astray by is not, so which one do you think actually comes from the true God? And so because of that, it's probably something that's just local variation in that area that we're dealing with. So it makes it a little bit harder to identify exactly what's going on. You know, one of the things we should probably explain also for those who don't know since we're about Gnosticism and proto-Gnosticism is what exactly do we mean by Gnosticism anyway? Well, that gets a little bit beyond what, what I can answer because I'm, I'm not okay. a Gnosticism expert. I can, I can say a few things on there, but I, I can't speak with great authority. Okay. Well, just give us a, a few things. Like, if you get someone listening and says, I've never heard this term Gnosticism, what, what do you have in mind when you say Gnosticism? Uh, 
blind spot there. Um, well, you're talking about people who are looking for sort of a secret knowledge about things because Gnosticism, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word Gnosis. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea was that there's some secret knowledge that you need to have that will be able to lead you into salvation that the average person doesn't have. And there'll be... Um, there will be some similarities with other like mystery cults and things like that. There's, there's secret knowledge that you need to be um, that you need to be given from the people who have the power to do that, and and so on and so forth. So the danger with that, uh, and as it relates to the letters, um, well, it's not Gnosis, but why some people. Why Christianity has uh, has had problems with that is because it's saying, okay, you need something other than Christ to be able to get you to where you're trying to go. And Christian response is, no, you don't need anything like that. It's Christ alone. You had the you know the whole thing also that some of them thought the Old Testament God was an evil God and such, yeah. and the material world's evil, things like that. Old Testament evil God, which you hear that that sort of thing coming out of. Christians, mm-hmm. a lot of times, they don't really know what they're talking about. It's like, the Old Testament was, God was evil, the New Testament, God was loving. It's like, no, mm-hmm. no that's not true. Okay, so, so now let, let's get to your area of expertise here. Okay. You know, because you're sitting down, you're reading Colossians, and I don't know what you're expecting, because odds are you've probably read this book several times before. What are you noticing that you hadn't noticed before that's surprising you? Well, the biggest thing that that, uh, that, that if, you're, if you're just looking at it the first time, you, you've read through the letter maybe a few times, and, okay, I see all these things. Probably the biggest thing that I would think that people should notice that maybe don't is that there's a hymn in Chapter 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, verses, verses 15 to 20 is actually a crystal, Christological hymn. Uh, when I say hymn, don't think of, like, you know, a hymn book. Mm-hmm. Or Hendel and that sort of thing. Think more of a creed, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Okay. And the problem is, and I've said this before, and I'll continue saying it. I, I really like translations. I think they do a really good job, but sometimes they do too good of a job, mm-hmm. and they make it really, really smooth, and you sort of gloss over this. And you think, oh, there's some really nice words about Jesus there in, in chapter one, and. The problem is, you just glance over this, This it's the theological foundation of the entire letter. And since Paul is explaining what the Christian worldview is, it is the theological foundation for the Christian worldview. So you can't just skip verses 15 to 20. You need to, you need to stop. They're, they're in Greek, they're meant to be choppy. They're, you're meant to slow down and read through them methodically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and every single word, every single phrase, I think, carries a lot of meaning. And that's just... And that's something that, that people tend to miss when they just read this letter and end. really shouldn't. I really wish translations would just separate that out, break it down, show some of the structure, and, and force you to stop and pay attention to it. Um, so that's that's something that that should jump out at you. It should, uh, should make you pay a lot of attention. And then uh, just generally, like in Chapter 2, there's, there's an explanation against the, the other philosophy, especially um, got a main thematic statement in verses 6 to 7. It says sort of the main points Paul is going to cover in the rest of the letter, and then you have an explanation following that of what Christ has done, why the other philosophy is wrong, and chapter 3 is, you know, 
how you're supposed to live this out. And so you have this transition from theology to practice, and, and there's there's a connecting of beliefs and actions in the letter that is really, really important, that the two are not separate. And, and Paul, in this letter, shows very, very clearly how actions actually follow from the very particular theology that he's laying out. So because Christ is this, therefore you have to live like this, and he connects the gods all the way between the two. And that's, I think, one of the main features of the letter that's, that's not easy to find unless you spend some time studying it. You know, I'm going to ask you something about the human creed, but I'd like to comment on what you just said first off, because it sounds like you're actually saying that Paul is, you know, giving you good theology first, and then saying, now here's the difference that theology makes, and I can't but think of a contrast if I was just telling you about, about going to church services and just hearing sermons that are purely application and nothing more could it be maybe we should uh, i'm sorry i'm speaking out of turn here so much but maybe we should actually be like paul and give the theology first well yeah because i mean i completely agree with that it's it's the why mm. you said well it's it's i just want what's relevant for my daily life how do you know that this is the right direction mm -hmm. i mean really I mean, how do you know that this is right and so if you don't have that together, then, I don't know, I, I just wish people would ask more questions. But honestly, I wish there were Q&As at the end of sermons and people can ask questions. Uh, that, would, that would be a lot more fun. It would certainly make church sermons more interesting. Actually, you, you might be amused to know when we lived in Knoxville, we attended a church <clears throat> where at the start of the sermon, the pastor there went about a text number. They could text in their questions during the sermon, and he'd come out the end and he'd address the questions. Oh, nice. That would be amazing. Oh, it, it, it was amazing. Sounds like he'd be say, this one is really in-depth. I'm going to go home and make a video log sometime this week about that question. But, I mean, it, it's really, I think, a great way to respond. And my way for... If you're listening to this on the podcast, you can't take advantage, but this is being done through Facebook Live, so we do have some chance there. So if anyone wants to ask a question of Dr. Lockery about Christianity and Colossians, feel free to. Now, you said that uh, we sh there's a hymn that was struck, but we should think of it more as a creed and such, and I'm, I'm kind of confused. I'm wondering what the difference is. Well, it's not really a difference. It's just a, it's just a change in our language. Um, hymns were, were, I mean, they were meant to be, I mean, you could sing them, you could put them to music, but um, that wasn't really their primary purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, a hymn like the, the one in, in Colossians was a way of, uh, of giving theology, think of it as um, formal oral tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, there was, you know, oral sayings that people would communicate around, and it was, you know, how people communicated information. But then there was a level above that, something we really have today, where people actually memorize something, you know, word for word, by remembering it. Was, um, it was a way of communicating important ideas. In Christianity, for example, though it wasn't unique to Christianity, uh, of communicating theology. Um, so, you find you find things like this in other places. Like I know you're familiar with First Corinthians 15. Oh yeah. The uh, for I delivered to you what I first received. Um, you know the, the delivering and receiving the words there in First Corinthians 15 are for the formal passing on of oral tradition. 
just like that, just like the apostle saying, okay, here's what we want to say about the resurrection. These, these are the main points we want you to get. And so you need to get this. You need to memorize this, and this needs to become a foundation for your faith. And you see the, the same sort of thing here in Colossians. You see the same sort of um, creed. Um, I don't know that you can call it that for uh, for First Corinthians 15, but it's it's the same formalized oral tradition that uh, that you find there. It really does show us how much more serious it seems Christianity was taken back when it first started, which would make sense since, you know, Christianity could sometimes lead to little things like, I don't know, death and such of the people involved. And yeah, yeah. And oftentimes before someone got baptized, they would make sure they really knew what they were getting into and such. And today we don't really have the same thing. I mean, you and I apparently became Christians when we were kids and let's face it, we didn't really understand too much about it. No, I mean, I told you I started getting interested in Christianity at 13. I didn't know what salvation was until I got to college. Mm. I told you about the church didn't teach anything. So it was, uh, it's like, how can, how can you grow up in church your whole life and not understand anything like that? How can you? I mean, but whereas them, it's like, okay, we need to understand this before you even join the thing. Now it's like, once you're in it, you still don't understand it. Yeah. And we just, you know, we've, we've fallen a long way, I think, mm. from, from that. But, I mean, even for the people who weren't facing death, I mean, if you join Christianity, you might be ostracized from your family. And that was yeah. a much bigger deal back then than it is now. It's, yeah. it's a big deal now. It was worse in a group culture. Yeah. Now, you've said Colossians 1, that passage there, the first one, such that's a hymn. What makes us think it's a hymn? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different reasons, and I don't want to go into too much depth because it's going to get super boring. But um, one of the reasons, one of the ways you know is that there's a pronoun change between the verses that you have before, from like 11 through 14, and then what you see after, like 21 through 23. Basically, what happens is you see that uh, Paul, is, Paul is going along using like first and second person stuff, mostly like like you would expect in a conversation. You and I are doing that. Yeah. It's first and second person, I and you, and with occasional third person stuff in stuff there, you know, where we're referencing outside material, he, she, and they. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the third person person stuff. It's the outside material. Yeah. And what you have in 11 through 14 is a lot of first and second person. It's a lot of I and you. Mm-hmm. Third person, but there's you know conversation going on, referencing outside material, and then in fifteen to twenty, it's only third person. There's nothing else, and then twenty one to twenty three, it comes back to a lot of first, second person, little, little third. Um, like in verse twenty one, it says and you. So it's like okay, now we're we're taking this thing that we just talked about and pulling it back to how does it apply to you? And so you can clearly see in fifteen to twenty that he's referencing outside material. <laughs> They, they combine that with the fact that uh, it's got a very, very different vocabulary and style um, and content than the rest of the letter. The vocabulary is very different. You get a lot of words that are found only only here in the New Testament. Um, and then you also, on top of that, added the fact that it's extremely structured. Everything, everything in this whole thing is extremely structured. You can divide it into basically two different strophes or two different verses like I think a little middle transitional verse, but the structure of the, the first one and the, and the second one, the first and second main ones, mm-hmm. um, 
exactly parallel each other through all sorts of little details. And the middle one has its own little thing that shows it to set off. So, this, so it's a highly, highly structured thing, which is what you find when you're dealing with um, hymns or creeds or oral tradition. So all of those things point to the fact that there is a hymn there, and there's not really anything that points away from it being a hymn. Well, you know, we, we, we talked about this a little bit here. We, we have to say something on this talk because for Jehovah's Witnesses we'll love to come to our houses and say look right here, this passage Jesus is the firstborn of our creation and I'm guessing right now you have to concede with him like that, yep, Jesus must be a creature, right? Yeah, that's it, no, we're done You know, that's, um, I was a Christian and then I, then I read that verse and that's it I had to leave and say, well no, he's a created being, they're right mm-hmm. That's here for alienism that's it. Go Arians. Not A-R-Y. Yeah. So, are the witnesses right? I mean, are we just hopelessly caught here? No, we're really not. They're, they're just, they're reading it at a surface level. They're not, they're not actually understanding what's going on. For one, um, the big thing, verse 16, it says for, um, probably a better translation of the word for would be because. Mm-hmm. Verse 16 is explaining why Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Mm-hmm. Just like you get some of the stuff later on the hymn, going back to the structure, uh, verse 19 has that same form, or I think should be because, explaining why he is the firstborn from the dead. So in, in 15b, you have firstborn of all creation. In 15, 18 uh, uh, c, you have firstborn from the dead. So you get the two firstborns, and then following that is sort of because of why he is the firstborn of, whatever he's the firstborn of. So 16, verse 16, you cannot separate from firstborn of all creation. It explains why he is uh, the firstborn of all creation. And the author of the hymn, uh, probably not probably not Paul, it's extra material that most likely is given to him. So I'm going to say the author of the hymn is Paul that almost certainly didn't write this. Uh, Verse 16 explains why he is the firstborn of all creation. And, he goes, and the author of him goes to great lengths to explain that everything in creation was created by Christ. And that you have the, the chiasm with heaven and earth, visible and invisible, heaven paralleling visible, excuse me, heaven paralleling invisible, earth paralleling visible, and then thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, and all of the power structures, whether earthly or spiritual. And two statements bookending that that say that all things were created through him, for him. Everything in creation, nothing left out, was created by him. So basically what you have to do is you want to say that Christ was part of creation, is that he somehow bootstrapped himself into existence, that he, he created himself, mm-hmm. which, as, as, as you know, that doesn't work logically. You can't create yourself. Yeah. It's, it's not a question of, of physics, it's a question of logic, because you have to already exist to create yourself. But if you already existed, then you would need to create yourself. It, it doesn't make any sense. So there, the Jehovah's Witnesses would have to say that uh, Christ somehow broke logic in order to be able to create himself. So that's one problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is that firstborn doesn't actually have anything to do with literal physical birth. It does in many places in, in the scriptures. Uh, you see it some in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, and 
you see it a little bit in the New Testament. The only place in the New Testament that it clearly refers to physical birth when it's talking to Christ is Luke 2 7, where it's referring to Mary giving birth to Jesus. That's it. All of the other references, um, when they're talking about Christ, are either definitely not physical or they're sort of a question mark. So you can't say that on the use of this word that uh, that is this referring to physical birth. And I'll explain just a couple more things about that. Uh, in Psalm, I think it's 89, 27 or something like that, uh, David is referred to as the firstborn. And then it's followed up with the phrase that he is the highest, uh, to make him the highest of the kings of the earth. And firstborn is being compared to the highest king. It has, has nothing to do with birth theories. Mm-hmm. David's already born. And so firstborn there is actually a reference to a, a ruling capacity. Um, in a more general sense, firstborn is about being the first. It's about being a position of primacy or primacy. It's a relation, it's a, a reference to one's firstness, if you will. And that's really what you see here. He is the first of all creation. He is the, the one who's in who's supreme over it. And verse 16 here explains why that is. It's because he created everything. Nothing being left out. Great pains to go to being one to say that nothing's left out. So the the Jehovah's Witnesses like Arius really didn't have don't don't have any reason to think that Christ was actually part of creation. Nothing nothing points to that. I mean a surface level reading might get you there, but if you actually look into what firstborn means and you actually look at verse sixteen as explaining firstborn, then it doesn't point you in that direction at all. hmm And couldn't we also say that it we were really being as literal as I expect to be that if Jesus is the firstborn of creation, that would mean creation would even have to predate Jesus. I mean, the firstborn of Jesse in the Old Testament has to come after Jesse. Right, he definitely would. So if he's the firstborn of, well, yeah, see, and then you run into problems there too, because then, yeah, creation would actually have started with Christ, and then he created the rest of creation. So technically, Christ would have started creation, then he just created part of it, you know, a lot of it, but it would have been just part of it. And then the hymn would just be wrong, because he wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, be all things were created by him. It would just be some things or most things. It wouldn't be all things, as it repeatedly emphasizes. Mm. Yeah. So we, what should we think about Jesus when based on this, this, this hymn? Well, not, um, not what it, it sort of sounds like, and some people might think that the idea of like this first century Jewish guy wearing sandals floating around outside of space and time creating things, it's not that. It's, um, this, this hymn is, is trying to figure out a way to explain something that they didn't really have a good way of explaining. Uh, the, the person of Jesus baffled early Christians and still baffles a lot of people today um, for good reason. And so what they were trying to do with this hymn, especially um, 
especially you see here in the first couple of verses, is trying to figure out how to explain his character. And you see a first stab here in incarnational thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like you want to say that Jesus is God, he's divine, but you don't want to say that he actually is the Father. Right. But you also want to say that he's uh, he's he's responsible for creation and doing things. You're sort of stuck in this, like, how do you attach him to God but not with God? But how do you make sure that you know people know he still is God? And what you have in verse 15 is saying, okay, well, he's the image of the invisible God, so he's not the invisible God because he is somehow related to the invisible God. And yet, in verse six, 16, with the firstborn. By being the firstborn of all creation, he is explained really as the uncreated creator, because if he's not part of creation, then he's uncreated, right? Mm-hmm. So you put two, you have the author of the hymn putting two statements next to each other. It's the uncreated creator stuck next to the fact that he is somehow related to God, isn't actually God the Father. Mm-hmm. So when you have those two things stuck next to each other, you really are looking at sort of early incarnational thought. Um, done a little bit different than they did later. I, I argue that what they're doing here is they're trying to explain Jesus in pictures rather than in propositions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's trying to give you a mental image of what it's like. It's it's like explaining God is a rock. You know, you, you see that, that sort of language in the Old Testament time. God is a rock. Well, it doesn't mean he's actually a rock. Mm-hmm. It, it means that, that he's strong. He's a place that you can, you know, put your you know, foundation in, and you can you can trust, and you can build other things, you know, on it, and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, that that's that's picture language. Uh, propositional language would be something like God is uh, causally active at every point in time and space, and such that no other agent, personal or impersonal, could be uh, could hinder or override his causal actions, or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it gets very very confusing, and they're not actually really saying different things, but um, what you have here is sort of like the picture version of incarnational thought. And when you get on a little bit later, like the two persons in one nature, um, or the two natures in one person, that, that you get um, a little bit, you know, a couple of centuries later, that's more of like the propositional way of trying to explain the incarnation. But mm-hmm. but you're getting the original version here, and I think that's I think that's something that, that people miss a lot of times. That you have in verse 15 and 16 a way of seeing that okay, he is God, but he's not the Father, and that's and that's one of the things that, that's trying to be communicated with him. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that if we're going to be same as we could be asking, what's the point in all this? I mean, okay, now we know that Jesus is 40 God and 40 men, which is going to be great when we're playing a game of trivial pursuit. But, geez, what difference does this make to our everyday Christian lives? Well, there's a lot of steps between A and B there. But um, basically, um, if you want to know what direction to go, it helps if you understand the way the world actually is. Because, I mean, it's sort of like getting the right worldview or right religion. If if Christianity is true, then the world actually is a certain way. If atheism is just true, it's another way. And if you want to know about how you should live your daily life, it 
kind of makes a difference which of those two is true. Mm-hmm. So, um, knowing knowing what the world is actually like is sort of critical. Um, now, now that takes you. That means that you actually have to back up and think through your worldview. I know a horrible thing to ask people to do, mm-hmm. uh, but you actually have to back up and think through your worldview and think: Do I have the right one or not? And part of explaining the Christian worldview is: Who is this guy who was walking around Israel for a few years, you know, two thousand years ago? And why does it make such a difference? And uh, Christians need to understand what the claims are that are made about him. And you know, if it's, if it's a bunch of nonsense, then just then leave it. Go to something else because you know, this isn't what you would pick if you're just picking something to try to make you happy. Now, it's, mm-hmm. you pick something else. Mm-hmm. So, it's, the only reason you pick Christianity is if it's actually true, and you know there there is a life after this one that we're in. So, right, but that's what matters. But let's suppose that we're gonna be average Christian here and says, Yeah, but I'm wondering really what difference does this make? I mean, okay, I believe in the Trinity, but why should that really matter to my day Christian Is that just something I can use to beat up Jehovah's Witnesses and make them buy? No, um it, it comes back to the question of, of image and what an image actually is. Um and if you, if you look at it, it's an image of the invisible God. Okay, God is invisible. You can't mm-hmm. see him. The image is a way that you can actually see him. So it's, it's very simply, if you want to know what God looks like, you need to look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because he is the way that God chose to represent himself to the world. And even more foundational than that, it's, it's saying that Christianity is a religion of revelation. God wants to reveal himself to humanity, and he has chosen to do that. Well, where and how has he chosen to do that? Well, he's chosen to do that in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That is what you, that is what God looks like. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. And so if you want to know how God wants you to live, you want to know uh, what his character and what his nature are like, you need to look at the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So I don't know how you can get any more relevant than, mm-hmm. you know, actually seeing God than, you know, saying, okay, this is where and how you see him. I agree with you entirely. It just seems that, sadly, so many churches seem to miss out on this point as if doctrine doesn't really matter. Right. They, they do, but part of it is there is doctrine saying that you can, you know, under. I think people get a little bit lost to. They think of doctrine as understanding this stuff that, that scholars who sit around in armchairs and smoke pipes mm-hmm. understand, but nobody else in the world actually needs to know. Um, but the thing is, if God chose to reveal it to, mm-hmm. to humanity, um, that's actually not scholars saying it's important. That's God saying it's important. So mm-hmm. right off the bat, you should say, well, all right, well, if God thinks it's important enough uh, for me to know it, then I probably shouldn't bother knowing it. I mean, he mm-hmm. should know what I need for my life better than anybody else because he created it and everything. Um but I also want to go back to the image thing as well, that, you know, Christ represents God because he is the image of the invisible God. And there's there's a, a tie-in later with with the actual image that, that humanity is being renewed. It said that believers are being renewed in the image of their creator. Christ reflects God. We're meant to reflect Christ. Mm-hmm. And so 
the purpose of our life and what we're supposed to be doing is actually to represent God to the world. So if you want to have, you know, if you want to actually fulfill your, your real purpose, not a made-up one that you have for yourself or something that makes you feel better, mm -hmm. uh, if you want to actually live out your purpose in this world the way God intended, then you need to reflect God to the rest of the world. So it, it starts all the way back with theology saying, okay, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is how God reveals himself to mankind. But it continues on down the line for uh, humans to reveal God to other humans. Mm -hmm. um, part of the way God reveals himself to the world is through the gospel. And you see that in the first, uh, I think it's about verse 6 or so. Um, uh, verse 5 and verse 6. And then you see that uh, again just a few verses later. The gospel is actually being put in parallel with believers. And those are sort of the two ways that God reveals himself to the world, at least as, as Paul is describing here. So we have quite um, we have quite a responsibility that if our job is to reveal God to the rest of the world, to other believers in part, but also probably more importantly to those who don't follow Christ. Um, that's that's pretty important. And mm -hmm. I can't think of a, a better thing that you could do with your life than you know, to fulfill God's purpose, but also but also to do by revealing Him to other people. That's what we were created to do. So you can't get any more application based on that. And I think it's also important to stress that we're going to talk about the love of God, like going back to what we said, start our, so many of our songs at church and such do over and over. It's important to know who this God is. And too many of us, I think, really think we know God, who God is based on our feelings and the experiences in our lives. Right, we sort of come up with a God that we think, well, I think God is probably like this, and I think God is probably like that. And it's like, all right, well, some of your thoughts might be okay, but some are probably wrong. Mm. Um, instead of coming up with the way you think God is like, perhaps you should try to find out how God has revealed himself, because that's probably going to be a little bit better. Yeah. Now, let's move on a little bit further in the book. When we get to the second chapter, it tells us to, uh, to avoid philosophy and learn such. Now, I've got some books in my library by Plato and Aristotle. Should I burn those? Yeah, you're here. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's the philosophy it's talking about is a very specific one. It's not philosophy in general. Um, the the problem is is the problem is that when, when you see when you look at verse eight or the, where the reference is, it's it's comparing the way that is according to Christ and the way that is not according to Christ, which is according to human tradition. And it's saying one way is trying to reach God uh, by building itself up from the ground. It's, it's, it's a man-made attempt to reach up to God. And Paul is comparing it with the Christian way, which is saying this is God's way of reaching down to man. Because, again, Christ is the image of God. Christ is the way God chose to reach down into the world and say, here I am, follow me. That's going to be a whole lot better than 
constituents trying to say, well, I think we should probably do this, and I think we should probably do that. Mm-hmm. The, the, God, the God-made way is going to be better than the man-made way. And that's really what the verse is saying. Um, it's, not, it's not against philosophy at all. It's just it's a reference to that specific philosophy that's trying to build itself up mm-hmm. uh, according to human tradition. You know, the, I believe it's the very next verse when it says that about Christ that in him dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. And is this hearkening back to that hymn in the first chapter? Yeah, it's, it's a reference to, to verse 19 in the hymn. Mm-hmm. It talks about the, the, the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ. And, and here is Paul expanding on that and saying that the fullness, um, fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwells in Christ bodily. And really this is... Um, this goes, this goes back to the question of revelation again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about the revelation of God to man. It's, it's specifically, it's a temple reference. Uh, God in the Old Testament was, was said to exist in all of creation. He, he filled creation. So, mm-hmm. so there's many places that you can, you can point to that, that, that said that God was, you know, throughout all of creation. However, he was present in the temple in Jerusalem in, in a very special way. Um, it, it talks about his fullness dwelling in the temple. And really what's going on here is you're getting a reference back to that. Um, there's a couple of images that, that the hymn uh, and also later on in the letter used to try to bridge the gap between God and uh, between God and man, because it's, it's sort of like the, the transcendence imminence problem. The transcendence is God's way up there. How can you ever interact with God? Um, humans and eminence is like well, we want him to be near us as well you know to answer our prayers um, and, and walk with us and so forth but how can the god is way up there do that and uh paul and, and the author of the hymn use use several images to do that um, one of them is wisdom which is where you get the creation of, of everything and the um the idea behind this wisdom was how God created the world was sort of this. If you look at Proverbs, the first few chapters, especially chapter eight, wisdom was sort of the semi personification of God. It's actually, um, it's actually a woman in chapter eight. Um, but wisdom was responsible for creation. And so this, this is how they're trying to figure out how to explain who Jesus is in ways that people understand, but the ways that they had on hand didn't quite go far enough. So wisdom was one of the things that they used. Wisdom was the way God created the world. And Jesus, you know, Christ was responsible for the creation of the world. But they go a bit beyond that and say, well, he was actually the goal of creation. Wisdom was never the goal of creation. And he mm-hmm. wisdom thought. Uh, but in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, it says that creation was made for him. And so you see wisdom thought, they sort of use it as a springboard. Well, Christ is the wisdom of God, but more than that. And you see the same thing here with the temple language, that the fullness of God dwelled in the temple. And you see that in the Old Testament, especially like the dedication of the temple by Solomon. You see the fullness of God dwelling in the temple. But they go a bit farther in in this letter, and they say, well, the wisdom that God dwelled in a special way actually in a person. So not just the temple. He dwelled in Jesus of Nazareth in the same way that he dwelled in the temple. And that's what's going on behind 
of this fullness of deity dwells bodily. You're saying the same way that God dwelt in the temple, he dwelt in this Jewish man who lived and was crucified. And that's that's quite a statement. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been talking about some about contrasting this with other worldviews. This case starts sounding something like Islam, because you're talking about how this is the Trinity doctrine working itself out and such. Does that mean um, Muslim friends have a simplistic approach and they say, well, show me that verse in the Bible where God says he's a Trinity? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to do that because, number one, I mean, honestly, I mean, as you know, Trinity didn't show up until later. Uh, I mean, there wasn't a concept until later. That's where they were trying to figure out the propositional terms to. Mm-hmm. Really, I think, answer questions. They started with the picture language, and then when the questions developed, they tried to figure out how to answer the questions. And that's when you got into the later Trinitarian and incarnational debates and, and the different mm-hmm. languages about the uh, two persons. Mm-hmm. You know, the three persons in one nature and the two natures in one person, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, one, it's just asking for something that, that's not there because they're asking for the answers to later questions, not what was originally put there, so you should just be looking for the pictures, which mm-hmm. I think are there, and we talked about that a lot, but I think those are actually there, if Christians know how to explain them, um, but yeah, I mean, they're just, they're, they're asking for something that is, is not going to be found, it's like, ask, it's like somebody asking for, well, show me the statement where Jesus said that he was God, it's not going to do that, because if he said he's God, people are going to try to identify him with the Father, mm-hmm. and they're going to try to think that this this guy who's living here actually is the father. Jesus didn't want to do that because, again, it's a trinity. It's not it's three. It's not one. Mm-hmm. So he is actually the father. Um, he's co-equal with the father, but he is not the father. The father. Mm-hmm. So they're really asking for something that, that you can't give because it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about the temple idea and such. I'm curious, have you ever read the work of, say, John Walton on Genesis 1, for instance, about creation being a temporal account? Oh, yeah. I, I absolutely have. I'm, I'm a big fan of John Walton's work. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I think what you actually see there is the continuation of the, the temple theme, the continuation of the theme of the sacred space mm-hmm. that, you know, originally um, God set up the cosmos as, um, as a cosmic temple, and the garden was created as, as sacred space within that, and the sacred space fell apart. And then you see in the Old Testament, there's you know sacred space being refound, reformulated, um, or remade by God. And the Tower of Babel is is, a, is a, another attempt, is an attempt by man to um, create his own sacred space. And God says, No, 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 I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to take care of it myself. In the very next chapter, then you get. God calling Abraham, and it begins the renewal of humanity, and, mm-hmm. uh, and then and then you get into the New, New Testament, and that sacred space theme is continued. And you have Jesus as the temple, and then you have, um, and then when you talk about the Holy Spirit between believers and us becoming renewed in the image of our Creator, we're actually made into small temples, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so. You, you see a, a complete uh, return to the, to the direction of a return to what God was intending to do in the beginning, and everything fell apart, and then he's been um, working back towards that. So you, you see, actually see in the Jesus as the temple, and more importantly, 
um, believers as little temples. Um, mm-hmm. The the creation, the, not the creation, but the uh, the completion of God's renewal work on humanity and by extension creation. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's interested in looking at this forever, I would point you back to previous shows. We've had John Martin on here, I believe, three times. The Lost World of Genesis 1, Lost World of Adam and Eve, and the Lost World of Conquest. And next month, we're going to be having Trimper Longman on, talk about a book he co-wrote with John Martin, The Lost World of the Flood. So if this is of interest to you all, then, then please be uh, look, listening to those past shows and looking for the one next month. But I'd like to remind everyone also at this point you're listening to the uh, Deeper Waters podcast. I've got Dr. Matt DeLockery here talking about the Christology of Colossians and what difference it makes to us today. If you're here next week, uh, you're going to hear absolutely nothing. Because I'll be at the Mention of Ours conference next week, God willing. But if you're here the week after that... We're going to have Dr. Ken Stewart on with us, and he's going to be talking about his book, In Search of Ancient Roots. If you consider yourself a Protestant today, are you following in the lines of the traditions of the early church, or should you consider maybe Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy? Have that, but you don't. We'll be discussing those kinds of questions next time. Now let's get back to Dr. DeLockery and talking about uh, Colossians. And now the next several verses of Colossians, they're very much atonement-centered, I think at least. Maybe I'm wrong on that. What do you think about them? No, I, I, think, uh, I think you're right. I think what's going on uh, just after that is uh, the explanation of how all this stuff applies to the believer. And so you get all the theology in chapter 1, and sort of um, you get this is how you live, this is how you're supposed to live, and these are the actions that you're supposed to you know, do, and so forth in chapter 3. And, and here in chapter 2, you're getting sort of part of the connection between those two things. And how exactly does all this stuff about Christ matter? How are you attached to Christ? And then you've got a series of, of five metaphors here that explain exactly how you're attached to Christ, the mm-hmm. circumcision, the baptism, and so forth. So you get your connection with Christ, with believers' connection with Christ here in verses 1 to 15. Do you have any ideas on the atonement based on these verses? Yeah, do do I think it's uh, penal substitution theory, ransom theory? Yeah, I can't think. No, I don't really get uh, an answer as to whether it's one way or the other. What you have here is sort of like a piling up of metaphors. Mm -hmm. and it's meant to sort of give you a big picture of things. Like, no, no one metaphor really explains um, in total exactly what what this connection with Christ is like or how it works. But it's, in putting them all together, you get um, you get a general picture. You, you find that the believer is uh, is given entrance into the new people of God. You find that, um, that there's a, there's a new relationship that you have with Christ that that um, is now part of the people of God, and in that you have freedom from uh, the powers and authorities that are against you. Any, any, anybody else that um, you, you know might try to do you harm, whether it's uh, spiritual beings or whether it's earthly powers, because Christ is the head, going back to Him being 
uh, and overall creation and so forth. Um, since he's the top dog, then nobody else can affect anything that's you know under his control, which includes us. Mm-hmm. And you also have um, you also have forgiveness for moral transgressions. So it's those it's those three things. These five metaphors really point to those three things: that entrance into the new people of God, uh, forgiveness for moral transgressions, and freedom from the powers and authorities that might stand against you. And that's sort of what these things are trying to explain, how how this stuff of Christ and what he's done and the fact that he died and rose again from the dead, how that impacts the believer's life. Mm-hmm. And I I don't come down on any one side and tell you, I mean, you tell me I think there's a lot to penal substitution, but I think there's some good stuff for Christus Victor model and such. I don't think they necessarily contradict, but what I often tell people is, I don't have any definitive answers entirely, but, you know, all I know is Jesus forgave me and new creation is being ushered in right now. Yeah. Works for me. Yeah, he, he goes on then, after us, it says, Therefore, let no one judge you and say, new moons and Sabbaths and festivals and things of that sort. Is this a case of him, he's give, he's laid out for doctrine, and now he's giving the application? Well, it's, it's not quite getting to application yet. It's, it's a little bit application, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, this is this is where he's getting into his polemic against the alternative philosophy. And this is this is where a lot of the uh, the main data about what what the philosophy actually is comes from. It, it comes from right here, and you can tell that there's some references here. Okay, well, there's uh, questions, food and drinks, and the moon of Sabbath. Okay, well, there's probably some Jewish element to this because otherwise we'd be talking about a Sabbath. Um, and there's rituals and feasts, and then there's a little bit later. There's there's ascetic things. Uh, verse twenty one, like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. There's might have been a little bit of an ascetic practices there, and, and so that's where you get sort of the idea of uh, what the philosophy is a little bit. Though you know you don't get a full picture of what it is, and then um, there's this odd thing about the worship of angels. Um, a lot, a lot of scholars don't think that's actually worshiping the angels themselves. It's worshiping with angels. Mm-hmm. Depending on how you take that, it could be worshiping God alongside the angels, and possibly the, the goal of their setting practices was to be able to participate in the heavenly worship of the angels of God. But I mean, it's sort of guesswork because there's not not a whole lot to go on. There's just there's a few things, and so. This is this is a comparison with the philosophy, but mostly against some of their specific practices. Mm-hmm. So, does this mean then? And since I refer to Sabbaths and Hebrews, Jewish festivals, that these this was actually some sort of Jewish philosophy. Possibly, and that's that's why um, scholars are leaning more towards the Jewish mysticism today. Um, you don't find a lot of people who take a really strong stance. And too many of them on the philosophy. They'll say, "Well, I think it's probably this," but there's always going to be a little bit of element of doubt because it's not fully explained. As you know, maybe something like you know, Galatians. It's a bit obvious. You know exactly who the opponents are. It's going to be the Judaizers. But here, it's like, well, it's probably this, but we're not 100 sure. You know, it's not what strike me odd about being possibly a Jewish philosophy is you wouldn't think a Jewish philosophy would really have anything to say about Jesus, but that seems to be what Paul emphasizes over and over. 
say more time. What strikes me as odd is you wouldn't think a Jewish philosophy would have anything to say about Jesus, but well, Paul says that over and over. But it may not have anything to say about Jesus. It may have, it may have just said something about, oh, well, you know, Christ is probably one of many, but, um, you know, he's not the supreme authority or, or anything like that. And Paul would come back and say, no, he actually is the supreme authority. He's not really one of many. Um, and what I, probably the verse that I find most interesting in this section is verse 17. It says that these are a shadow of the things to come, the substance belongs to Christ. I think what's most interesting here is that Paul is not discounting the idea that there are other things that you can know about God. Um, just in the world, there are things that you can know. I mean, we, we talk about this all the time, this general revelation. And if God really is the creator of the world, you should be able to know something about the creator from his creation. Mm-hmm. The, the picture is going to be a bit fuzzy. You're not going to get everything, but you can know, you can know some things. And, um, and I think that's what he's saying here. Yeah, these are a shadow of the things to come. There, there's a little bit that you can know from here, and that's great and everything. But the full picture is to be found in Christ. And so, really, I think um, I, I think statements like this should point Christians in the direction of particularism rather than exclusivism. In other words, Christ uh, and Christianity is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to the world. And this this is the true path. But it doesn't mean there aren't bits of truth that you can find elsewhere. It's just that the, just the full truth is here. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Dr. Walker, we have a question here. It's coming from Facebook Live asking, what do you think about the claim, since we're talking about the deity of Christ, what do you think about the claim that that really comes from paganism? The claim about the deity of Christ comes from paganism. Yes, that Jesus as a God come, as God comes from paganism. Well, it seems a little odd to me. Um, the idea that Jesus is a God, or, or I mean, this is the same same answer I would give to the dying and rising God. Because apart from any consideration of any particular data on, on how uh, it would have come specifically over, and, and if you're going to say that Jesus. Um, as a god came specifically from paganism, I would I would want to see evidence to show that that, that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but leaving that aside, um, the question of whether or not there's actually any evidence to say that he came over um, the concept that Jesus the God came came over from paganism, yet he has to sort of wonder how Christianity could have sort of the internal debates that it did in the early centuries. Like, okay, so Jesus. Uh, they, they imported these pagan ideas, but then they had, but then they had issues about Jews and Gentiles and whether or not we could eat together. They had questions about circumcision and being sacrificed to idols. It's like a whole lot of it. We imported our main central fact from paganism. Mm-hmm. How is it that we so quickly forgot that? And then all of a sudden, like, well, we don't know if we can, we can, we can let Gentiles do this whole Christian thing. Well, we don't know if we can have meat sacrificed to idols. We don't know, but certain. It doesn't seem congruous. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like it makes sense to say that they they took their main point uh, from from outside Judaism and then from those same sources started to have all sorts of problems that we don't that we can accept this. So it just doesn't make sense sense to me in a very general way, apart from any specific considerations. Hey, we've got another question here. Someone going back to Colossians one talks about how Christ is. A, 
we use the terms for, been, and in, sustain, held together, etc. And does this uh, support Irenaeus's idea of recapitulation? When Christ died, we died. When he rose, we rose. As far as that, I think most of these things are, I'm not familiar with Irenaeus's view of recapitulation. So I'm just going to have to guess on exactly what you're what you're talking about there. I'm thinking what you're saying is that saying we actually died when Christ died. We actually rose when he rose. I don't know that uh, these things are meant to be pushed to that level of specificity. I think mostly what you're getting here is an explanation of how we are attached to Christ. Christ died and rose again. That's, a, that's, that's an actual historical fact that he, that he did those things. And this, is, I think, is an explanation of how Christ went through death and came out the other side, and he's taking us with him. Just, just as he did this, so we are also doing it as well. Mm -hmm. I think we're still in sort of the picture mode here. We're not really getting into the, the propositional language. It's still, it's still painting a portrait saying, we are with Christ, and, and what he did, he is taking us along with him in the same, same journey. Now, when we get to the end of Colossians 2, it talks about that since we've died of Christ to be elemental or spiritual forces of this world, why do we still play according to the rules, as it were? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. What's Paul saying here? Well, I think he's, he's pointing at, at, the, at the sort of ascetic practices that some, that some people in philosophy were trying to say. that it's, it's going back to this, what he said in verse 8, that this human human tradition, this man-made sort of ground up, how do you reach up to God? And, and they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, be aesthetically or physically rigorous to themselves and live very, very strictly in order to try to make themselves more holy. And he's saying, you don't have to do that. These, these are all human teachings. Um, you know, he says in verse 22, according to human precepts and teachings, he's like, these are human things. You don't have to follow those. The, the, the true way is through Christ. You've already you've died to this world. You're living for the next. And you see that in uh, in verse or excuse, verse one through four of chapter three, just right. just in the next little section, saying you've died to this world. You're supposed to live for the next world. Because you died and been raised with Christ, then you should focus on the next world because that's your ultimate destination. And that's what he's going to get into. It's like, okay, this is where you're headed. Since you're headed there, since that's your ultimate final reality, don't bother with the things of this earth. It's just not important. Um, I don't want to go off into another direction and say, like, well, you know, things of this world don't matter. You don't have to pay any attention to that. He's not saying that. Yeah. Focus on what's of real and ultimate importance. If you're talking about an eternal existence with God, if you're talking about an eternal life, then why don't you focus on what's eternal and not on something that's going to be passing away here? Very, very soon. Yeah, I think some people would say that, I mean, is Paul telling us to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good? No, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely not that. That's, that's, that's a bit of a misreading of this. And it's, it's when, when you look at, at something like this, it's really easy to go astray a little bit. Um, whether it's this section or whether it's the, the issue of Jehovah's Witnesses and the firstborn of all creation and so forth, there's so many places where you can just be just a little bit off and just a little bit off 
gear is going to take you off in this direction. It's the, the only way I know how to say it is that there's a, a huge importance on having wisdom when you read something that's talking about um, talking about things of this level of significance. When you're talking about the the history and the, the story of God and man on, on a grand scale, you can't you can't come to that you know being naive. You, you need a bit of wisdom on, mm. on that. It's, it takes some maturity to be able to appreciate something like that. And that's and that's one of those things that like being so heavenly minded that you're not really good. That mm. if, if you came to that as, as a mature, wise, and experienced person, I don't think you would end up in that position. And I think what happens is a lot of people just read the sort of thing on a surface level and, and haven't really gotten into that or haven't really appreciated it from that depth. And that's why you end up with all sorts of things like that that just if you had a bit more depth, then you just you wouldn't end up doing that sort of thing. And I think we can also contrast where he talks about things like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says, forget these words. Here are the things you really don't want to handle. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. You know, is Paul making that contrast? Uh, I don't, he's not making it explicitly, but I think he, uh, I think that probably would, would come out. There's mm-hmm. a difference between they're saying these are the things that you don't do, and very shortly he's going to get into saying this is what you actually need to not do, mm-hmm. and here's why. And then he explains a bit of the why on it. So he's contrasting what they're saying you should do, focus on the festivals and do it on the Sabbath, and you shouldn't do that, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then he's about to explain this is the way of Christ. This is what you actually should should do. Put on and put off. Yeah, uh, I think one of the big lessons we could learn from where he says later on also is when he starts talking about forgiveness, for instance. I remember years, a few years ago, shortly after I got married, and I was working at a Walmart as a cashier, and during a slow time, one of the girls remember because of me says, You know, you seem like a pretty wise guy and such, and you know, you seem to know what you're talking about, very spiritually in tune. What's the best way to learn how to forgive someone? And I said immediately, get married. You're going to spend most of your, a lot of your time either giving or receiving forgiveness, and I've spent a whole lot more time receiving it. And and as we kept going on, I said, I'm just having a very hard time forgiving someone. And I said, what's his name? So how did you, it is always a boyfriend or something like that you're having a hard time forgiving. But forgiveness is something that, we do have a hard time dealing with from a church today, isn't it? It really is. It's, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's probably one of the hardest things that you can have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because you really don't want to. Yeah. That, that's why you have to be told to forgive, otherwise you're just too passionate. The fact is, you really just don't want to forgive. I mean, you don't want to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but that's what we're told to do. I mean, we're supposed to reflect Christ. Mm-hmm. He forgave us. It's like, Fine. You know, I, I can tell you better. Uh, mine better. Usually, if someone does something against me, where you know I'm, I'm very passive in that sense. Like, yeah, not too big a deal to me. I can handle it and such. Let's just make things right. And now, if someone goes after my princess Ali, that's an entirely different story. I am ready to let loose the dogs of war. Is a raging inferno here. And I have to work really hard to not hold on to a grudge against them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand. 
And I'm, I'm also going bad. You know, and I have talked about this kind of thing before, and it says, like, how can you forgive me if I do such and such to you? And I always say the same thing. I mean, it's pretty easy for me. I just look at everything that Christ has forgiven me for, and then I think, well, I got to do this because whatever anyone else might have done to me, it's not a, it's, it's nothing compared to what I've done to Jesus. I think, uh, I think in that you're getting, you're getting towards the definition of what love actually is because, you know, Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies. Yeah. I think the, I think the point people pass over so many times is like, well, how exactly are you, if love is like this romantic emotional feeling, mm-hmm. how exactly are you supposed to have a romantic emotional feeling for your enemies? But they're your enemies. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point. They're, they're not people that you like. They're people that you really, really don't like and probably hate. And so if, if that's all that love is, then yeah, that's an impossible command. You're supposed to you're supposed to have warm, fuzzy feelings for people that you have opposite feelings. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think what he's talking about when he's saying love is like you need to be looking at something else. You need to be looking at um, I would say that it's actually selflessness. You need to be acting in a selfless manner towards them, even though you don't like them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think forgiveness gets um, is a big part of that, where you you learn how to forgive somebody that you really don't want to forgive. And I think um, I think that's part of part of what's going on here. And I'd like to remind everyone at this point listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do is supported by listeners like you. And I really encourage you to give. Please go to the website that I have, deeperwatersapologetics.com. And on the side, you'll see a link, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And uh, when you click on the link in there, you'll get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You go on the right place. That's um, the Ministry of Mike and W. LaCoyne, Mike and Laws. You make your donation, you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Al, and say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And that will happen. Now, you can also uh, go and buy some ebooks that I've ever written, such as Defining Inerrancy or Co-Written, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters. The one I've written, sorry, is a creed for the ages. The Apostles' Creed in today's Christian and co-written is also defining inerrancy. Uh, Christian answers for this generation's questions. And, guys, um, we've been talking about forgiveness with our wives and such. One of the ways you can make up for those stupid mistakes you've made with them sometimes is by uh, using jewelry. We have a jewelry store here, and you can buy something very special for that lady in your life. And, you know, if you want a last-minute Mother's Day gift, this could work fine, too. You just go to the Premier Jewel if you need some help. Let me know, and I'll show you how it's done with the code word LOVE for Deeper Waters. And whatever you purchase, 25% of that will go to Deeper Waters. So as you guys know what I always tell you, you can buy something special for your wife or girlfriend, to make up that big screw-up that you recently did with them. Or you can buy something special to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with them. And 
you can't do any of these, please consider going on iTunes and leaving a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. Uh, now, Dr. Dockery, do you have any organization you'd like to be people donate to? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I started to lead a, a group called Why Should I Believe? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a campus ministry at Georgia Tech that I started. I went there, and now I do, I do ministry there trying to help students who are looking for answers just like I have been. Um, so we have a chapter at Georgia Tech. There's one at Cornell uh, that started this year, and there should be one starting at Georgia State in this fall. Um, so if you go to whyshouldibelieve.org, um, you can look at uh, under the staff section. I'm under there, Matt Delockery, and uh, you can donate that way, or you can go to my personal website, uh, mattdelockery.com, by the same thing. There you can find links to my uh, podcast, blog, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, we've uh, had someone ask here about the forgiveness thing. Is Paul saying that God is unconditionally forgiving? Uh, well, I think Paul uh, is not actually talking about that in the letter. He doesn't get into the question of uh, whether he is forgiving everything or whether he's not. I think from other places that he says, yes, he does. He, he forgives uh, humans of everything that they've done wrong. There's, there's not a sin that you can commit that God can't or won't forgive. Um, but it's, it's not something that's getting this being discussed in the letter here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you get when, you, when you're actually talking about a Christian worldview is, is the fact that there's a lot of things that are left out. Um, if, something most people don't really realize when you look through the letter, um, there's pretty much no mention of the Holy Spirit. If we're talking about the big things of Christianity, it's a little surprising. There's a brief reference to the Spirit in chapter 1, verse 8. But that's it. There's no other mention, and that one's not even 100% certain. It's the Holy Spirit that probably is. Um, so, again, you're not getting a full Christian theology here. You're getting sort of how you would compare Christianity to um, another worldview. And the Holy Spirit is something that I think is very important to the life of the believer, but it may or may not be something that compares well with another religion. Um, let me give you another example. Um, some people may not like the fact that I just said it may not compare all another religion and say the Holy Spirit's not important. Um, something else that usually I think is pretty important that's not in here is the Lord's Supper. It's not mentioned in Colossians, uh, though Paul seems to think elsewhere that it is very important. But if you look at that, that's, the Lord's Supper is actually something that's a bit derivative. Um, it is depending on your, your particular view of it, whether it's um, a symbol of remembrance or whether it's actual means of grace. Um, but all of that is, is based on the death and resurrection of Christ. So it's not, so, so the death and resurrection of Christ is the primary thing. The Lord's Supper is the secondary thing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so really in this letter, all that Paul is focusing on is just the primary things, and specifically the primary things that compare Christianity to another worldview. So things that may be very, very important to the life of the believer um, don't necessarily always show up here because they may or may not compare well with the view. So, again, you're not getting a full Christian theology in the letters. You should understand that. Now let's uh, move on a little bit further. We get what's known as, I believe, the house rules. 
how families should interact. That fun section. Yeah. Now, first off, what do you think about this section in comparison to Ephesians? Well, it's, it's a bit different emphasis in Ephesians. You have a lot more about the relationship between wives and husbands. Here in Colossians, it's, it's, uh, it's almost entirely focused on the relationship between slaves and masters. Part of that is, I think, because of the, uh, the situations in in uh, in the two different in the two different churches, probably there was there was an issue with uh, with the slaves and the relationship with the masters in Colossae, probably because uh, you know Christianity recruited a lot from the bottom of society because it was saying that everybody is equal, you know the people at the bottom are going to respond to the top bunch. So there would have been issues with, with the household order, um, especially in relation to slaves and masters. Um, also, Ephesians is focusing a lot more on the relationship between Christ and the church and there's emphasis on the bride. So there's going to be a bigger emphasis on the, uh, on the relationship between husband and wife because it's being made as a comparison to Christ and the church. So um, there's a difference in emphasis here. Um, but I mean, this, this is a very big problem passage for quite a lot of people because really I think it's, it's the longest um, passage on slavery in the New Testament, especially sounding like it's good. You get some ones in, in the Gospels that are longer, but that's, that's because they're in story form, so they're bound to be even longer. Mm-hmm. There's a very extended section here um, saying that Slaves, you need to obey your masters. And that's, that's a really, really hard thing for, for modern years to hear. And let, let's get into that a little bit, man, because there'll be some people like say Robert Price who will go on Unbelievable and say, but why didn't Paul just tell masters to set their slaves free and try to end slavery if it was so evil? Well, there's a very good reason for that, um, because he wouldn't have been the first person to try that if he did. And Rome was kind of sensitive about slave rebellions and, uh, you know, think of Spartacus and, uh, and all the slaves that got crucified uh, who rebelled against Rome. And, and his rebellion was not the only one. It, it happened um, a lot in the second century B.C. and up through maybe like the middle of the first century B.C. Mm-hmm. Um, can't remember the exact dates on it. It's around there. Uh, it slowed down a little bit after that. But Rome was uh, Rome had a very not good relationship with slaves. They they were rebelling a lot, and slave rebellions were always put down very very brutally. Um, lots of bloodshed, and it didn't go well. So think about Paul's perspective here. He's he's one of the leaders of this new little fledgling religion. If he comes out and says. Uh, you're all free now, so um, you know, just throw off your chains, stop obeying your masters. Rome would have squashed Christianity before it even had a chance to get going. So that wasn't really a practical option for Paul, even if it, even if it's true that you know slavery is wrong. Practically speaking, he just can't say that, or all of his you know new Christian converts can get slaughtered. So. You know, that's not a very good option. So the question is, well, what do we do about this? Well, and I think I think what you have here is sort of a it's 
it's in one part it's a case study for how to live all of the values that he gives in the previous verses but it's also a sort of a, a guideline for how Christians should live in a world that has different values than they do and the short of it's basically saying okay you're in this world that thinks differently than you do and they live, they live differently you have to still live within the world systems you can't you can't just go off and do your own thing he's not telling them to be like the Essenes to go off and live in the desert and because you, you need to live in the world because you have to have impact on people if you're, if you're going to be witnesses if you're going to be revealers of god if you're going to be his representatives and his images you have to be around people so they can actually see it so you have to live in the world somewhat but you don't have to act quite like it. So he's saying, okay, follow these standard rules. And, uh, the ideas of slaves obeying your masters and wives obeying your husband. Uh, this is part of the household uh, organization discussion that goes back as far as Aristotle. And these were considered high morals uh, that he was telling them to, to follow. But he does something differently. He adds his own versus like, you have to live in the world, you have to do these sorts of things. But, he adds a little bit, he's like, okay, first of all, he gives reciprocal duties. Wives submit to your husbands, but husbands love your wives. Mm -hmm. you know, that is that is not something that happens um, in Aristotle or in any other, uh, any other current thought. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that husbands have duties to their wives, not there. It's, it's, it's a one-directional thing. Um, says children obey your parents and fathers do not provoke your children unless they become discouraged there was no you know parents don't you know be, be nice to your children there wasn't any of that and then again this um you get into four one is where it talks about um that the uh master treat your bond servants justly very fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven he's reminding them like yes you have slaves here on earth but remember you are a slave to someone else and if you um, if you if you look elsewhere, I mean, it talks about Paul and Timothy being the servants of Father. So he's trying to trying to explain that you are actually serving Christ, just like somebody is you. So think about think about this relationship and think about how you would want to be treated. So on the one hand, there are reciprocal duties that he's, he's saying, and that's that's new and that's quite radical. So live within society, but remember, um, you know, you have a duty to them as well. But also, he's telling them, do your work, uh, you know, servants, do your work for the Lord. And, um, and masters, remember that you have a Lord and There's this constant reminder that you're living for something else. Mm -hmm. So what he, what he does is he actually walks a very, very fine line. He's, he's trying to remind them on the one hand you are all equal because everybody here serves Christ so we are equal. Now, we are in this very unusual situation that, or should I say we are in this very usual situation that's not right and we have to continue living in this but if what you do is you live in this situation that everybody else around you does but you do it differently if you live better then you have to then you're going to show your neighbor something that they're not going to see anywhere else because they're going to they're going to take notice. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you why are you treating your servants so well? Servants, why why are you actually working hard for 
your master's, why, why are you doing that? Because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And I guarantee you, if you see something like that, you start to notice that all the people who are doing this are Christian. You're going to take notice. You're going to start to ask why. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's sort of the direction that Paul was going in. He didn't have the option of just freeing everybody. He just couldn't. Or mm-hmm. wiped everybody out. He just, they just killed everybody because they didn't mm-hmm. do. Um, we see showing them this is how you live a Christian life in a non-ideal situation. And I see the household code as sort of a, a case study, if you will, to how to put all these things into practice about living selflessly and things like that. And he just talked about earlier in chapter three. How do you put this into practice in a very real and very difficult situation? We can say it later on when Christianity became more established that Yes, yeah, people like John Chrysostom giving sermons against slavery, and the Christians would often back buy slaves just to set them free. Yeah, you see, you see, you see things like that, and then later on, um, you have people like uh, Wilberforce who were arguing against slavery because of Christianity. And I think you can do that. I just think Paul was in a situation where he had absolutely no ability to do anything like that. Yeah. Um, I think today when so many atheists talked about how, you know, why doesn't the Bible just outright condemn slavery? I think it, it just shows how much they've been affected by Christianity. Because if you go out on the street today and such, and you go up to someone and say, yeah, do you think we should consider bringing back slavery? They would be aghast at the thought and think, how could you? Slavery is horrible and things like that. But if you went to first century the first century war and he said hey do you think we should get rid of slavery they would be aghast at you and say what are you talking about slavery is essential today yeah it really is that's 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 what they that's what they would have said what they would have thought mm-hmm. so um it's it's an, there's an unwillingness for i think people outside christianity to be willing to take uh things like that into context mm-hmm. and to understand and to be to be a little bit generous to the Christian claim to, to really say, okay, that's probably true. On the other hand, there also is an unwillingness on the part of Christians to take time to, number one, understand the historical context, and number two, to um, to make sure that you consider the historical context on things that you may not, not necessarily like. And, um, you know, that, that goes back to, you know, you're talking about John Walton's books, like there are a lot of people who just reject that out of hand because, oh no, it couldn't possibly have the, the, the Israelites couldn't possibly have been, you know, answering questions that their, you know, their Canaanite neighbors would have been asking. It's like you're just talking about a mindset from that time period that they were answering certain questions. It's not saying that they're they're copying theology over. It doesn't make any difference. A lot of Christians won't even consider that. So there's, there seems to be a willingness by people on all sides to to actually consider historical context and take the time to find out what did these things actually mean. Yeah, and that's because I've been going back to another part of the house wars, because if we consider, say, the longer section in Ephesians on commands for husbands, because those are pretty verbose and such, most of the guys in the audience, if they were around using today's term, they'd probably ask, is Paul smoking crack or something like this? Yeah, a lot of things that he says just just don't make any sense today unless you, yeah. unless you take the time to understand what's really going on. Mm-hmm. 
because today we live in a world where you know romantic love is very common in marriage and that's the basis for it but back in paul's day that wasn't the case marriage was pretty much for a survivor for production of children the unifying of families and a wife could often more often be just the person you're going to have you like children with who will inherit your legacy or maybe even just your favorite sex partner but that's it yeah um or maybe not your favorite sex partner maybe just someone who's going to have children with and then you have somebody else that you really like having sex with and, yeah. uh, she was just there for you know the official means that was actually really common um, mm -hmm. so so paul's commands in any sense they are still really revolutionary for the time but they really are and um even more so when you understand that he's not being he's not being naive and just say oh you need to just you know, be be free you need to do that it's like he's actually he comes up with a, with a, with a pretty pretty wise um uh, um I'd say even a little bit shrewd uh, way of uh, only about the negative connotations of, of dealing with the situation. He's, he's walking a tightrope here, mm -hmm. and uh, he seemed to manage it pretty pretty well because he got the ideas through. Mm -hmm. Christians carried on understanding that people are equal, but they, he managed to you know keep everybody from getting slaughtered. So he accomplished his job pretty well. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes a lot of our skeptical friends makes is they look at the ethical systems being dealt with and they compare it to our time which is after about 1900 years of christianity and say where well, it should be just like the end result that we have today where not really paul's just planting seeds as it were yeah there's there's so much influence that christianity's had that people don't even realize sometimes when they talk about um you know christians are sometimes you know especially um some Christian does something wrong, whatever, and they get accused of not being uh, not being humble or something like that. It's like, well, hold on a minute. Um, and that may be true in that particular instance, but people today accept humility as a virtue, like it's like it's a good thing. It's like, hold on, we Christians invented that. Humility was not a virtue; it was a vice. Mm -hmm. um, and it's still, uh, it's still thought um, pride was. The virtue and humility was considered a moral failure, mm -hmm. and Christianity introduced the idea that humility was a good thing. It's like, so the, the, check your facts, check your history, because we invented that—that that humility is a good thing. So just just remember where that came from, and, mm -hmm. um, because Christianity actually has been successful in quite a lot of things that people don't realize yeah. necessarily where that came from, and, that, and that's one of those things. Yeah, I think. To be, I mean, people when I look back on Christian history, I say, oh, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Salem witch trials, and things like that. And most of them, they don't even bother to understand these subjects. And I say, a whole lot more complicated than we realize. They miss other things like the rise of medicine, the rise of hospitals, the spread of literacy, the founding of universities, the rise of science, the end of slavery, all these other things. And and they don't bother to consider what, what the context is either. It's like, yeah. The reason that, the, that things like the Salem witch trials happened is because people believe witches are real. Mm -hmm. If you believed your neighbor was putting curses on you and would, uh, you know, possibly kill your family in some horrible way, and or, or kill all the crops and everybody would die of starvation, you'd be pretty upset too if you thought that person was living next to you. Mm -hmm. That's like saying that 
you know, a member of ISIS was living next door to you. If you found that out, you'd be a little upset. Um, how would you react now? And, and if that was true, would it really be that much different than people who, who just were living next door? Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, now I'm not trying to defend the witch trial people. I'm just saying, think about the difference. The difference is that they believe witches are real. We don't. Um, but if you put it in the context of something that we actually do believe is real, we're not really that much different. Yeah. Now, when we're getting towards the end of the letter, I mean, what are some things that you're noticing at the end of the letter? Are you talking about... Uh, like the final chapter. Still so, uh, chapter four? Mm-hmm. Chapter four is really, he's just sort of pulling all home away. First, uh, verse seven to the end is is pretty much sending his greetings and things like that to the end. Um, I made reference to verse 18 earlier about Paul writing the greeting with his own hand. If, if he actually wrote the, the letter himself, then that wouldn't make a lot of sense. It'd be possible that he could have used a secretary. But um, I think the fact that, that Timothy probably penned it or put it together also makes sense. Paul saying, hey, I'm signing off on this. So mm-hmm. Timothy. Um, but so there's not a lot of theology that you find in uh, verse 7 through the end. You get a little bit in uh, verse 2 through 6, sort of pulling some things together, some, some general statements uh, towards the end. Uh, but most of the, uh, you know, the walking wisdom towards outsiders make the best use of your time. You know, it's about having a good witness towards people on the outside. Mm-hmm. Most of theology finishes uh, with chapter 4, verse 1. You get the, the how to live in chapter 3, get your case study of the household code that finishes in 4 1. Then you have a few final remarks in the, in the closing readings. And then mostly by this point, he's, he's finished. Mm-hmm. So, now if you had been preaching a sermon or a sermon series and you got to this point, what are you saying? What do you think are the big ideas that we should walk away from? Well, there's a few things. Um, you need to understand, um, let me put it this way there's a theology, mm-hmm. there's the practical living, and those are the two two big parts of, of the letter. And then there's the connection between them. And there, it's not just like, okay, yeah, Christ is, Christ is, you know, who he is, and that's great and everything, but here's these things that you need to do to live. No, they're actually connected. And the, the actions flow from the theology. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to understand the main theological ideas, and then you need to understand how those translate into the actual things that you're supposed to do from day to day. And I think that's I think is really what you need to walk away from is walk away with is you know, understand each of those things in their entirety. Like so, spend some time looking at the hymns, spend some time looking at the theology. Also, spend some time going back and looking at the um, at the, what you're supposed to do. And there, there's a lot in there. You find that um, give you know, another example of how the theology ties in um, the. The, the chief moral virtue that's being given here is um, it's, it's called love. I would argue that a better translation would be selflessness, because mm-hmm. the way the way we mean love today is just a romantic or emotional feeling. That's, that's not accurate. Yeah. But selflessness, and, and Paul describes it further as 
um, you know, the, the opposite thing, the, the selfishness. He describes it as idolatry, but people focus on themselves. And here you have your connection back with the theology again. It's because Christ belongs at the center, not you. And so because Christ belongs at the center, if you put yourself first rather than him, then you are committing idolatry and you're making yourself your own God. And since you don't belong there because you're not the image of the invisible God, you're not the creator of all things, then you've got things messed up. So the theology works itself all the way into how you're actually supposed to live. And I think you need to understand both the theology and the living as their own things, but you'll but the real thing to get is how all of these things are connected. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this kind of brings us back for a circle where we talk about beginning curse. So many times in our church services, we have applications from the text, and the applications could be good and true. For a sake of argument, we can say they are, but it's like they're just floating in air. There's no place for them. There's no reason for them, and that, that's a that's a huge disconnect for people, and it makes it seem like all the text, all the whole point of the Bible is just where here's how you are supposed to live your life for you, you know. I remember being in a Sunday school class in my 20s, and having a teacher say, so now if you had been preaching a sermon or a sermon series, and you got the Bible, things. Um, you need to understand, um, let me put it this way, there's a theology, mm-hmm. there's the practical living, and those are the two two big parts of, of the letter. And then there's the connection between them. And there, it's not just like, okay, yeah, Christ is, Christ is, you know, who he is, and that's great and everything, but here's these things that you need to do to live. No, they're actually connected, and the the actions flow from the theology. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to understand the main theological ideas, and then you need to understand how those translate into the actual things that you're supposed to do from day to day. And I think that's I think is really what you need to walk away from is walk away with is you know, understand each of those things in their entirety. Like so spend some time looking at the hymns, spend some time looking at the theology. Also spend some time going back and looking at the um, at the, what you're supposed to do. And there, there's a lot in there. You find that um, I'll give you another, another example of how the theology ties in um, the the, the, the chief moral virtue that's being given here is um, it's, it's called love. I would argue that a better translation would be selflessness, because mm-hmm. the way the way we mean love today is just a romantic or emotional feeling. That's, that's not accurate. Yeah. But selflessness, and, and Paul describes it further as um, you know the, the opposite thing, the, the selfishness. He describes it as idolatry. People focus on themselves. And here you have your connection back with the theology again. It's because Christ belongs at the center, not you. And so, because Christ belongs at the center, if you put yourself first rather than Him, then you are committing idolatry and you're making yourself your own God. And 
since you don't belong there because you're not the image of the invisible God, you're not the creator of all things, then you've got things messed up. So the theology works itself all the way into how you're actually supposed to live. And I think you need to understand both the theology and the living as their own things, but you'll but the real thing to get is how all of these things are connected. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this kind of brings us back for a circle where we talk about beginning curse. So many times in our church services, we have applications from the text, and the applications could be good and true. For a sake of argument, we can say they are, but it's like they're just floating in air. There's no place for them. There's no reason for them. And that, that's, a, that's a huge disconnect for people. And it makes it seem like all the text, all the whole point of the Bible is just where here's how you are supposed to live your life for you. And I remember being in a Sunday school class in my 20s and having a teacher say, the book of Joshua was written so Israel would know to obey God. And I'm sure Joshua wanted them to do that, but I think there might be a little bit more of a book than that. Yeah, it's um, glad you brought that up. I want to I want to bring up a, another point that we, we didn't talk about. There's actually a reason given in this letter for why you would want to actually live the life God wants you to give. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people ask that question all the time. It's like, why would I want to bother with this? Like, God wants me to live this way. So what? I don't want to. Why would I want to do that? Well, Paul actually answers that question. He explains why a person would want to follow life God tells them to. And the answer is thankfulness. Mm-hmm. And when you understand the theology, going back to theology and doctrine, you need to understand these things. When you actually understand what Christ has done for you, the only the only proper response is thankfulness. And that is the reason that he gives for why you would want to live a moral life. Because you are thankful for what has been done on your behalf. And if you don't understand mm-hmm. theology, then you don't understand what Christ has done for you. You don't understand who he is. You don't understand what he sacrificed. And you don't understand what lengths he was willing to go through to help you out of your miserable situation. And if you don't understand the theology, then you can't be thankful. And if you can't be thankful, then you can't appreciate what God has done and want to actually you know, follow the direction that he's put in front of you. You, mm-hmm. you won't want to follow the path that he's laid out for you. So... You, you cannot live a good life because if you don't understand the theology, because thankfulness is based on understanding that theology. So you can't have the one without the other. And if you understand the theology, then you should live the whole life. I mean, they're not, they're not, neither one is disconnected from the other. They're both connected. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sitting and just thinking about this over and over in it's it's just really problematic because our churches seem to be so anti-theology. Such, and I, I wonder if part of the reason for this could be that we've grown so familiar with Christianity here in the West, it no longer shocks us. It's like, well, yeah, Christ forgives us, uh, love God, do good if you're a man. Yeah, that's it. But we all know that already. We don't really consider how revolutionary those ideas are. Well, those particular ones, when just just the very, very basic, you know, back of the book, mm-hmm. two paragraphs summary, we've become familiar with that. But 
we're not familiar with it at any deeper level than that. Yeah. And I think if people actually did understand a bit more, when you start to when you start to dig into things a bit more, you see how wide this world is that you just have no exposure to. You do begin to have a bit more appreciation for things like that. And I think I think that's part of the problem that we have no appreciation for it. And the other part is that like it's it's become almost a well, we have to get people to church because that's what they need so they can hear hear what they need to hear, hear the hear the good news. It's a pastor's so job. Yeah, and, and so it's a pastor's job, it's not your job. And that's I argue completely backwards. Churches are not um, not meant to be a place to bring people in, they're meant to be a place to send people out. Um, mm-hmm. You, they're meant uh, they're meant to be more like a barracks they're supposed to be a training ground to, yeah. to create people to send out that's a whole other conversation if um, we properly dress for church we come in and come back here yeah mm-hmm. um, and it's just and so things are things are done to do whatever they can to, things are done to, to, to make sure that we can get people to church and everything's focused on how do we get people in the church and the problem is that you've actually affected what happens when you're there, mm-hmm. just so that people will come. And so things get watered down and watered down and watered down. Um, and, then, and then you don't really have anything of significance anymore. And people, and people actually start to think that that's what Christianity is. And you wonder why Christianity doesn't shock them anymore. It's because what you say, what you mean when you say Christianity, and what they mean when they say Christianity, very different things. I'm not sure if you know this, but the reason my ministry here is called Deeper Waters, and my wife thinks it's so funny because I'm actually terrified of water, but what it is is that, you know, if you go to the ocean, you can walk in the shallow part, and you can find some enjoyment in such a map, but if you could go out further and deeper, you would find there's so much more to that world than you could have ever thought to begin with. I mean, we... I think we've gone further out of space, but we have further into the ocean. Yeah, this, um, it's just not that explored. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think that's an appropriate metaphor because Christianity and real faith is something that's, that's very infrequently explored. I'm also curious, if we have the way the church is, have you, uh, one of the best books I've read, Recently is book by David Murrow, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And I mean, anything. This, this is just so accurate about what the church has become. Are you familiar with that? Not familiar with that, uh, but uh, church and I don't get along very well, so I, I definitely appreciate the idea, at least communicating yeah. by the title. And you should check it out, but I, I, I agree with you entirely. I, I don't know how many church services I've. I've been, instead I've got my phone out and such and trying to read something else that I think is interesting because it's kind of been here, done that, can you give me something very substantial I can chew on here? Yeah, I definitely understand. So what do you think listeners of this show need to be doing then? As far as which part? As far as the, the discussion on Colossians, as far as church? Changing the church. Changing the church. Mm-hmm. That is a very large question that I'm. What I've been trying to do 
with this particular research project is try to understand what Christianity actually is. Like I, my gut tells me there's something very, very wrong with it. Mm -hmm. But in order for me to not just remake Christianity in my own image and try to say this is what I think it needs to be like, I'm trying to go back and understand from the very beginning what is it supposed to be. And that's why I did a PhD, so I could actually understand um, what it's supposed to be so I could do the research and get answers. So I think I'm coming with this, I've been able to understand a little bit what is Christianity at its essence. And we'll be putting that talking about it in podcast now, I'll be putting it in book form in the next few years. Um, the next major question that I really want to address is, is getting into the question of church was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can't answer that yet. I would like to be able to. But I think, as far as I'm feeling right now, something is going to have to change in the way that we're doing church. The model right now, is, as we've been talking about, has been about bringing people in, it's about meeting their needs, about making people happy. And frankly, getting the numbers up. It was used, I think, as a means to an end. And that, I mean, I understand why people would do that, but we've, we've wandered a long way away from what it's supposed to be. And in order for that to get fixed, individuals are going to have to start actually taking their own faith seriously as individuals. And that, I think, is probably going to be step one. Now, what that looks like when you actually come together, I don't know yet. Um, I wish I had an answer for you right now. I don't. Um, a little ways down the road, five or ten years, uh, hopefully I'll have an answer for that. But um, I think it needs to start by, by individuals taking their faith seriously. And then we can start getting on with the question of what does it mean to take our faith seriously as well. Just to clarify, when you said that you get in your gut there's something wrong with Christianity, you don't mean Christianity both in the biblical sense, but Christianity as we do it today, right? Right, right, right. right. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, like modern American Western Christianity. I don't mean the biblical sense. Like, I do think that, um, you know, I, I go back to the beginning. It's like, I do believe God exists. I believe that Jesus yeah. died and rose from the dead bodily. And, and these things, and Christianity is actually true. But how we conceive Christianity as modern Americans um, is a little off. Yeah. But what is it supposed to be? And I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, or at least, what I think I have a bit of an answer for for the Christianity part. I think working towards that with what I found in Colossians, but um, I don't have an answer for the, the church question yet. Um, mm. But yeah, so I, I meant, I meant uh, criticism of our version of Christianity, not the actual, real Christianity. Yeah, I just want to make sure I didn't want some atheists jumping out later on saying, hey, look, man, Lockery says there's something wrong with Christianity in his gut. And, no, I, I appreciate you saving me from that unfavorable soundbite. Yeah. Now, and you and I are on the same boat. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with the problem as well and such, what it is and how we can fix it. But unfortunately, that's going to have to be a discussion for another podcast because we've reached our time limit here. Now, do you have a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Yeah, um, you can find out more about what I do at mattdelockery.com. That's M-A-T-T-D-E-L-O-C-K-E-R-Y. Um, I podcast regularly, blog occasionally. Um, and I, uh, I also have a Facebook page, Twitter. Uh, you can you can find me at Matt Lockery mm-hmm. um, on Twitter. Just 
facebook.com slash Matt Lowry as well. So there's link to, links to all of those on my website if you, uh, if you want to get in touch with me that way. Mm-hmm. And do you, uh, you have any final words you'd like to leave today from a deeper Waters audience? Uh, I just appreciate you having me on and giving me the chance to be able to uh, share a little bit about Colossians and sort of the essence of Christianity. It was great having you on. And I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Hope to be back. And I can mind when you're here next week, you're going to be disappointed because I'm going to be at the mention of our conference. But the week after that, we're supposed to have uh, Dr. Ken Stewart on talking about his book, In Search of Ancient Roots. Does Protestantism have a heritage to it or not? For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. It all started with a small-time dream. Hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker? And with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages, do we want to? With these two questions, The Mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to thementionables.org to get your tickets, or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables. Small-time voices, big-time noise.